This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Another episode of the Washington Female Podcast. Uh, today we welcome Colby Mancasola from Knapsack. Newly reformed reunion plans are, have been announced, and of course, it's a great chance to catch up on the past, present, and future of the band. So, Colby, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, it's good to be here. Awesome. What got you into music early, early on? Was it? Were, have you always been in California? I uh, grew up in Northern California um, in a town called Redding. It's it's like a hundred thousand people now with no college. Uh, back then, it was maybe half that or a little more. Wow. Um, you know, my dad's a. I grew up in a. Some people, a lot of people say musical family, and they mean um, a family of musicians. Um, but I grew up in a musical family, just in the sense of always being around, um, always having music playing, whether it was the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, or I even remember a time uh, when my dad got home from work and was talking my ear off about how great, uh, like, you know, Van Halen Diver Down was, or one of those uh, early records. Could have been women and uh, children first, but I digress. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was an interesting thing uh, that that set up, which was, how do you rebel when, like, my, my parents are super cool and super young and, um, you know, great and liberal and um you know i didn't have teen angst or adolescent angst in the traditional way because it was a good time my family's wonderful uh to this day they're some you know they're my best friends and uh wonderful support system and so how do you rebel and and what does that look like and what's what kind of music could possibly piss your parents off when you know your dad is like don't turn off the car yet we need to finish uh you know uh, this led zeppelin song or you know something like that so um i think the first thing that was like 
it didn't piss my parents off because they're pretty hard to piss off with music. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe modern country would do it. Uh, I think, I think early like hip hop, like buying twelve inches, was fascinating because it was something that you had to go to a special record store in the city to do, and then it was also like the thing where my dad, what the biggest rise you could sort of get out of my dad was like. I totally don't get this. Like there's, there's nothing about this that speaks to me at all. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, early like hip hop 12 inches, uh, was like the first thing that I sort of came upon that was like, Oh, this could maybe be my thing, even though I'm a white kid who lives, you know, three and a half hours from the closest major metropolitan area. Like, you know, my existence is very much not an urban existence, but at the same time, it there was like a, um, there was a lot of mystery to it and it was a whole new world and it was codified and it was hard to buy the records. So there was like some exclusivity and, and uh, that was like the first taste of, uh, of that. And, you know, it felt very different than the stuff that I would get into later, whether it was indie rock or hardcore or whatever, but if you look at those like descriptors, some of them are very, there's a lot of commonality there where it's like, oh, exclusivity and sort of like this codified community and and that stuff started to like get interesting to me. And also it was just stuff that always had to do with like the city, which I was always drawn to. And my family was one that, you know, came to San Francisco, whether it was for baseball games or other things, pretty, you know, common. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty often, so that that sort of musically was like a seed that got planted, and then that quickly turned into like um, you know maybe I saw something on 120 minutes back in the day, and then that you know and I saw patches on the people uh, that were older than me, you know, punk jackets, and starting to put like what that looked like um, together. What was like the what was the gateway? Do you feel like those twelve inches were the gateway into being like, well, okay, this isn't on the radio. This isn't, you know, this isn't connecting. People don't know about this. And then you're seeing the patches, you're seeing the stickers, you're you're reading the liner notes. What was like the gateway to being like, holy crap, there's this whole world out there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I always joke um, with the people that I grow up with that there was a summer where like all the breakdance kids came back to school in September as like punk kids, <laughs> and, and I always thought like uh, it would that would make for a funny screenplay or to somehow tie that into a movie would be would be funny. But um, you know, I got into uh, the the first two Seven Seconds records were not seven seconds wasn't a local band but reno slash sacramento was close enough to where um you know people maybe knew kevin or someone from seven seconds or they were just they weren't around but like there was a, a little bit of a local angle there so you know it's like i probably heard the first couple seven seconds records when i first like heard the minor threat record mm-hmm. but there was something about that that was um that spoke to me a little more and just felt like it was it was closer and it was maybe happening kind of around us um in a way but at the same time it's like you know i bought those records but you know i i at the same time very much needed to go over to the uh the rem replacements path and ease into things from that way where it was like oh what seven seconds and minor thread and those guys are doing is cool 
cool and like you know i get that from like a certain perspective uh you know i totally got wrapped up in the mystery around like the first couple rem records or you know all but the last two replacements record i love the last two replacements records Mm -hmm. too but like the mystery was gone right and the uh the camaraderie of this idea of a band was gone but like through high school Though, you know, that was my thing. I was never a, um, I wasn't a punk kid in high school by any stretch. I was very much like a, what's now called indie rock at the time was like, um, you know, American alternative college rock was mm-hmm. totally my jam. Was that, was there, was there a record store? Was there like a mail order? Was it, was it just going to shows and, and local shows and kids talking about it? There was... was no record store, to to be very clear about that. There yeah. was no record store. You could drive to um, the only Amoeba – I don't know how well you know the West Coast, but yes. on the West Coast, there Amoeba's are three Amoeba it. records, Berkeley, San Francisco, and L.A. At the time, it was only in Berkeley. And then there were also a couple other great record stores in Berkeley to where – and that would say from coming from where where I grew up – Stopping at Berkeley and not going into the city saved you like a half hour to an hour depending on traffic. So if you could do that, so like a great trip would be, you know, go to Berkeley and shop for records at Amoeba and a couple other places that were around at the time. And then if you could go to a show at either Gilman or or the Berkeley Square, you could just drive back home and, you know, you get home at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. But um, that was a pretty good way to spend a day. When you grew up where I grew up, and you know you're 20 years old or whatever it was. Yeah. But no, uh, a lot of mail order. When Lookout Records came around, um, it's funny. I'm friends with Chris, who used to write. You know, who used to pack my. Um, he ended up running uh, Lookout, but he used to at the time he used to pack the mail order envelopes and write little notes in there. And so uh, to this day, I'll still like geek out with him and be like. <laughs> And he's like, we've had this conversation 17 times. It's not that interesting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would always be like, remember the one time that I ordered such and such record and he wrote such and such? And he's like, do you know how many of those envelopes I packed? Like, this is, come on. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, so mail order, of course, was happening. And um, when I met Blair uh, from Knapsack, like I said, I was very much like an REM replacements, Pixies, Dinosaur Jr. kid, and he was uh, he was like a straight edge kid, um, and so his bands were like Judge and Youth of Today and, and stuff like that. And so we started to find like this common ground um, with bands that were, you know, that were sort of like the peanut butter chocolate, like meeting in the middle a little mm-hmm. bit and it's funny because sometimes it would just be for one song where it'd be like oh the record shit but like but listen to this one song they do that one thing that like they get it they the pieces come together and they do it right you know or yeah. it's funny it was like uh you know uh the the first couple of fugazi records but none of the songs the geese sang on because that was like that was too abrasive you know it's like what we were looking for was like very much um you know the uh, just kind of to mix and match certain pieces of of both worlds. Well, that the, the obviously the common theme is just so funny that each time when these bands meet, there's one guy that's into hardcore or like straight most times, and then there's another guy that kind of came in from the indie world, and then yeah. out, out popped <laughs> what you know, kind of what what knapsack was it? This this happened so many times. Um, 
But yeah, so mail order was a funny thing back then because you wouldn't always even get the records that you ordered. You know, it used to be that you would put down your second and third choices if they decided that they had run out of that record, and then you'd end up with something. And uh, I think uh, I don't know if you remember that band, Four Walls Falling. This yes, definitely going down a boring path. But I remember there was a time when uh, Blair had ordered a record. And I forget from who, but probably Revelation. And we were excited to get it. And so it was like checking the mailbox after school yep. multiple days in a row or even maybe multiple weeks in a row. And then he got like the he got the note that was like, we didn't have your first choice, but check out this record by Four Walls Falling. And I don't know those guys. I'm sure they're nice guys. But um it was just a it was a disappointment. It wasn't the record that it had been ordered and it was like, What's this? This is not this is not what I signed up for, you know? Mm-hmm. And you just you were sort of stuck with it. Um and that's that's how it went. Wow. The how did how did you guys meet? Was it was it again over music or you saw, you know, a sticker or a patch or something? Um Blair knew Blair was friendly with my friend Joel. And, um, and then ultimately my, uh, my friend Ken and we, we sort of became, he, uh, Blair, Ken and I became like, you know, um, the trio running around together and we had a band together before we went to Davis. So, um, I knew Blair in high school a little bit, I think, Mm -hmm. but again, he was pretty punk or hardcore or straight edge, whatever you want to call it. And I was, you know, I mean, there were probably some years early on in there where I maybe, you know, was showing up to high school with eyeliner on. So we, we were inhabiting different worlds. Uh, and then it kind of came together through the mutual friends and we went to junior high or we went to junior college and we stayed in Reading and we did a band called downtime. Um, there's a, there's a cassette demo that got reviewed in maximum rock and roll and, and maybe mail ordered by five people. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> someone showed up to a knapsack show early on. It was like, look what I have. And we're like, destroy that thing. Oh, wow. Kill, kill that man and destroy that tape. Yeah. Uh, so we did this band together and that was, you know, that was like uh, an interesting mix of things because. Ken, who played guitar on that stuff and is an amazing guitar player, um, was very much from my camp of like Dinosaur Jr., Replacements, whatever that we were into uh, at that time. And then – and then, but Blair was front man. And so it was starting to be – it was feeling our way around of what like that all might sound like if you put, if you put it together and you, and you tried to kind of land somewhere that, uh, that was a place that we kept gravitating to, you know, through – it's the you know like the one song off of ten different records that we had kind of glommed onto and said this is what we like. Yeah, I feel like that was always when you were on like a road trip or something with a bunch of friends and you had to find that one song or that one record that everyone could agree to. Yeah. Um, and that kind of happened to turn into you know knapsack. Did you guys go to UC Davis? Did you know you both were going there? We planned to go together. Wow. Yeah, so we planned to go together. I was hot on the idea of um the the college radio station there is is great and um has been around and has been really strong and has always been freeform for since I think the late 60s. 
And so I was hot on the idea of that I was going to go there for that reason. And um, Blair and I had the same major, which was rhetoric and communications. I mean, we were, you know, it's like we were pretty inseparable Mm -hmm. at the time um, that we moved to Davis together. We were, you know, we were in a band together. We were taking a bunch of classes together up in Reading at the junior college. And we, you know, we, we lived together when we got to Davis. And so. And then so like uh, through that, I mean, was it was the band kind of I guess the during it was the band taking the to the front seat? Was it shows, music, class? When did when did the band kind of turn into more than more than you guys had thought or was it getting kind of serious? The, it... uh, the band was broken up when we when we left to go to to Davis and there had been that review in Maximum Rock and Roll and there was a record industry guy who got in touch with us and there was a guy who wanted to put out a 7 inch too Mm -hmm. and um, so it kind of became this thing of like there's enough interest that if we just keep these people, if we can string these people along and say well don't worry about like yeah we're going to change the name of the band (laughs) But other than that, it, like you'll still like it. Mm-hmm. Then that'll that'll buy us time to sort of like figure out what we do next. Because we were moving to Davis, and we didn't really know people that um, we didn't know how to put a band together. You know, we didn't know how to like move to a new town, figure out how to not live at our parents' house, figure out how to pass classes at a university, and do a band at mm-hmm. the same time. Let let alone like all the fun stuff like having a radio show that started at three in the morning or uh, going to parties or skipping school or whatever. What, like it was a lot for us to sort of sort out, but we figured we might have a chance to do it if we could buy ourselves a little time. So as there was interest in someone putting the, wanting to put a seven out inch out or this other guy who was from a bigger label wanting to like do a record deal, it was like, okay, well, let's not blow this opportunity. Let's let's sort of fake it until it's a real band again thing, and and that ha- and that's what we did. So you guys kind of reconvened, got you know figured out, and then the kind of started to put together knapsack. Yeah, we did. Um, there was a band we had tried to do. We did knapsack with a couple different bass players as a trio, and then. Um, we there was a band called Pivot in Sacramento that was like a really cool like post hardcore uh band and um for it we said we we booked a tour I'm skipping ahead because somehow we had booked a tour <laughs> and um we said we booked this tour and we're not even really a band we've been patching these shows together with different bass players but that's not going to work out we don't have one right now and so two of the guys from pivot were like well why don't we just we'll just join the band or we'll do the tour or whatever and then that way you'll have a bass player and a guitar player and those guys um you know it was great that was rod and jason who we made the first record with Mm -hmm. and um that was great because those guys were the only people that we knew that were in another band that had like that we could talk to about stuff, you know, like 
they were they were super into discord records like they were like really into lungfish for instance or things like that where we had touch points where you know it's like as you're starting to do a band or to describe what you're after or to put a song together to have that sort of common language to be able to say like oh this is sort of like the you know whatever you might call like a this is sort of like the dissonant sonic youth breakdown or mm-hmm. or this part is sort of like the you know whatever you might want to call a part of a song or or you know or admit to uh aping from another band but there was that commonality where it was like okay so we all sort of talk the same language and and um this is going to work that's awesome well, and at I... that point so we did that we we had a cassette demo of two songs i think and we had a band and we went on tour um and then it things kind of started moving fast from there and i i should have said at the very start of this interview that it's it's anyone any old friend that i've mentioned <laughs> Uh, if they heard that I was doing an interview where I was supposed to recap uh, anything that happened longer than six months ago, they would die laughing because I have a notoriously bad memory. <laughs> That's okay. That. That's why we have the time to work through it. We, uh, you know, you can go back and correct things, and it's totally fine. I, I wanted to kind of think the '94 you guys had signed a Goldenrod, correct? And we just wh- did a seven inch. So which we... one, the True to Form or the the Stuntman? Both of them. No, uh, I want to say neither. We did the train wrecker seven inch, I think, on okay. Goldenrod. It's blue. It's got a train on the front, so it's probably trainer. Yes. And, and that that was also uh, home to no. Yeah, you knife. know. So we went from. Yeah, there was. They were doing a bunch of cool stuff, and it was. Um, it was. They were very much. Kind of in, San Diego was a really fun place to uh, to hang out at that time, um, and there was a lot of great bands coming out of there, whether it was like the No Knives and the Boilermakers that were doing something more similar to what we did, or if it was the Rocket from the Crips and the Drive Like Jehus that were just amazing. Or like, you know, we'd end up at parties with like the guys from Supernova who were just a, a really good time. And it was just a, it was a great time. So we, we would go up to, we started to be able to go up to the Northwest and um, we had met some like-minded people uh, you know, we did a show with Sunny Day Real Estate before their first record came out. We were, uh, to this day, big fans of the Tree People, and and certainly huge Tree People fans at the time. Mm-hmm. Went up and were able to play a show with those guys. We met John and Polly from Seven Six Four Hero. We met the Hush Harbor guys, and so that was all happening. And plus, we you know it was a weird time, so we would play like. You know, we would play, go up there and play with bands that were on K Records, or you know, like that were doing. Soundwise, we're doing something very different than what we did, but like, but but it was all kind of the same thing at that time, um, which was a cool cool thing about that time. Well, I was and very of, different than, than now. I, I was laughing, kind of looking through all the bands you're sort of associated with and, and mentioning, and being on. You know, coming to be on Alias, it was like Archers, Yola Tango. How the hell did you get roped into post-hardcore? Like, you know, touring with Pavement and Jawbox and Drive Like Jehu. I just was like, you know, where does that... It's just funny, like, you would think that it wouldn't turn that way, but it did. Well, it, well yeah, and it sort of goes back to the... Um, like you said earlier, you sort of play your mutual aesthetic. I mean, the records that we were listening to 
when we moved to Davis and we're down at the college radio station 24-7, I mean, I, at, at that point, it's like I was done listening to um, – the records that you might think that the first or that the knapsack records sound like and and on to like getting really into the pavements and the and those different things and and so but it's like the music you play and the music you're listening to that minute are usually very different you know it's like we had gelled around this thing that we were really into at a certain time and that was what that band was going to be. But that didn't stop us from listening to, you know, records on merge that were completely different or things like uncle Tupelo that were completely mm-hmm. different or, you know, it's, um, but we were never going to be a band that whose next record sounded like uncle Tupelo. Um, yeah. but that's just, I think that's, it's that time. It's the time. It's. I think it, that's a part of what was going on at that time. But I think it's also a part of being, you know, twenty-five or whatever we were. Yeah, but those. I mean, you. I had read, you know, the for this Silver Sweepstakes touring. You know, it was Pavement, Rock from the Crypt, Jawbox. Like those are some fucking awesome tours. <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, I mean, we we were definitely accused of living a bit of a charmed existence early on. Um, because like I said, we had gone up to Seattle and we had made friends with, uh, the people I mentioned who were, you know, super fun and cool. And then we we went down to San Diego and we happened to get to be, um, friends with Paul from Rocker from the Crypt. And he lived in this house with a, with a couple friends that we always stayed at and, and had a good time at. And, um, and then from there, it was like, you know, there's this band, A Miniature, that was awesome. And uh, Mark Trombino played drums on their last record. Uh, we got to be friends with those guys and the No Knife guys. And so it all, um, in those two places, you know, we could, we touring was super fun, or just to drive down there to play a show um, was super fun. And then, but even in our hometown, we couldn't, you know, I mean, we were never a big band in. Davis or Sacramento or anything like that. We were always like this thing um, that, uh, you know, th- those those towns were into very different kinds of scenes at the time. And what we were trying to do, we had to, to look for pockets of people that sort of got it, which was not to say that it was like high art or hard to get, but it, it was just like, I, more than anything, it was just kind of uncool. Like no one was – there wasn't a name for it. There wasn't like um, – it, it was – I guess more than anything, it was a tough sell. Like when we would try to book those tours, people would say, you know, what do you sound like? And, you know, I, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. Trying to make that make sense to someone who, you know, who's booking completely different kinds of bands. You know, it's like it – was, it was just a very different time. And then – I wanted to kind of bring up the word. I was going to bring this up later, but it's kind of a good point. I mean, emo, it's obviously synonymous with you guys, good or bad. Um, and you're mentioned as a band from that era and influential and they're referenced. What was, you, I mean, was it around at that time? So like 95, I mean, and were you, was it at the point where you're trying to get away from it? Was it a blessing or a curse? Because again, I I thought from you know it, being on Alias, having all those bands, I initially I didn't think that. I was just like these guys are making these super hooky songs, <laughs> and it just you know got roped in. Well, 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it, so there was a time when everything was something core, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and so when emo core came around, the idea that there was this term emo core was just like, well, someone had just thought of another word to stick in front of core. Yeah. And I remember being in a car and someone saying, oh, something about like the first Green Day record or something. Oh, it's, it's you know, it's emo core. Or I, I think even uh, like an early no effects record, someone was like, oh, that's emo core. But then like, when in more like hardcore environments, the whole like flopping around on the floor, yep. screamo thing, that was like, then that was emo. And I was like, well, I, you know, at this point, it's like you've got over here, you've got Green Day writing love songs, and that's kind of a an uncool whatever. That's a very different thing than what their peers usually do or whatever back back then and you know early early on. Certainly different than what Operation Ivy was doing, for instance. And then, and then th the flop around on the floor like hardcore stuff. Those were so completely different. I'm like, well, you're just grabbing at straws. Now it's like it wasn't it it wasn't until the you know the the other thing happened, which was the Christie front drives and the minerals and the boys' lives and the giants' chairs and the no knives and Jimmy Eat World. When when those bands, when we all sort of came together of like, well, every two were included at least two of those bands. Yeah, that was when it was like, okay, the world has decided that you know it was confusing at first, but it's not confusing anymore. This is now officially that. Interesting. Yeah, the I mean, when I was talking to Jim from Jimmy World, he kind of when he th was emo, it was like the screamo bands. It was yeah, you know, it was all the was like super dissonant. You know, it was it was aggression. It wasn't pop hooks and girls and love. Um, yeah, and so that was that. I had always thought, okay, well, emo screamo, and then it started to just oh well, this band, this it just again, it just got so diluted. Even at that time, um, and of course the East Coast, West Coast. I love hearing these different stories from all over. You know what? What labels? Again, I never messed with Lookout. You know, it was more the East Coast mm -hmm. labels. It was Discord uh, more. So, so it's also interesting sure. too regionally what stuff you got into and what you related uh, to things. But I, I do think that that point of yeah, the Mineral Giants chair, you know, Boys Life. That was definitely it was like oh okay and of course you guys were on the don't forget to breathe comp which was um i think an introduction for a lot of people um you know as like a early intro of like oh is this what this is or what's this scene or um that was an interest i mean that was a compilation big for me yeah um yeah i mean crank was certainly uh right there in the middle of all that yeah, did you what was the I guess I mean before we jump to the you know the the comp I think the the alias stuff I mean um you guys put out um a bunch of records for them and you know stuck with it it wasn't you know hopping around and um what about that made a great relationship you know as you guys made a few records for them Well you had heard asked earlier I I think you asked how the hell did we end up on alias records and that came out of you know those were the records we were listening to when our when we signed to alias archers of loaf were kings of the world in our circles you know yep. i mean we loved those records um we had seen archers live and just thought they were insanely great and um 
you know, I'm the the record that Alias put out by American Music Club and the record they put out by Yellow Tango. I like those records a lot too. And and but that had happened like years before. Mm-hmm. And then and then Alias sort of went after the North Carolina stuff and they signed Archers of Loaf, Small that became Small Twenty Three. And Eric Bachman had been from the Archers had been in that band but had left. And then a band called Picasso Trigger, which was kind of a different thing, but part of the same thing. And we, I mean, we were super hot on that stuff. And so we were at the time we were talking to this label called Thirsty Ear, which didn't stick around for very long. But at the time was like, I, th- I think it was like Beggar's Banquet, who is UK based, was this was going to be like their foray into the to like a more American based label or mm-hmm. they shared offices with beggars in in the U S or something. I, I, I don't know exactly how that all worked. And then we're talking to mammoth and mammoth was a weird label at the time because they had put out some cool records that um, they put out some cool, like Indian records, but they had started to flirt with like the post Nirvana gold rush and had put out some, some really, you know, They'd put out a Seven Mary Three record, and they had that swingy big band. Um, Squirrel Nut Zippers. Uh, Squirrel Nut Zippers. And so that was a weird label. Um, and then the third one that we're talking to was Alias. And, you know, at the time, we thought Alias was a cool record. They'd put out some of our favorite, you know, records of recent memory. And, um, and they had, they had money to do like an indie label at, um, like, with you know people have said like oh it's like an indie label but with major label budgets the woman delight who runs that runs that label um came into some money a long time ago i think through her husband and so it's it's a kind of a hobby slash passion project for her that's awesome so that seemed like a good deal and the reason we stuck around is because when you signed to alias records um it's it's a little bit like the Hotel California. You uh, you can you can come anytime you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> and uh, we could maybe get to that part of that in the last year. We've we've reacquainted ourselves with um with with that phenomenon with them. Yeah, that's always fun. The uh, I mean, I'd love to talk about server sweepstakes. The cellophane. I was looking on Spotify. Most played song um, out of your whole catalog. Yeah, uh, that was a weird um that was a weird time and to sort of set the stage a little bit, I guess there was a little bit of a um of a false hope that we were going to be like a post Nirvana um thing, mm-hmm. which is to say and and I think that happened with Sunny Day Real Estate and and they're, you know, sort of their single there was a single on that record when when it came out around that same time um people hadn't really figured out what was going to happen after nirvana or they hadn't figured out that it wasn't repeatable and and that it wasn't going to happen again so like i said when we signed to alias although that's a small label like there was interest from mammoth who had major label money or different things like that and you know there were trade magazines back then that had us as like um you know, a uh, uh, sought after sort of uh, buzzy, like bidding war type band. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, there was a little bit of that happening and some weird stuff happened where there was a time before our first record came out that the the music director at um, 
K-Rock in LA like flew to see us play in Sacramento and there was a small group of people that I think thought maybe we were like the next big thing which clearly we weren't but for that reason when our record came out and our record got mixed by this this guy who had done big records and things like that and uh, you know we've Spin the label spin a lot on the video. There was a time when it was like that's how it was promoted, and in, even on the when we were touring behind um, Silver Sweepstakes, I remember it was it was like we would play like a total all ages teen center type show one night, and then the next night it was like oh there are people from the radio station that you're getting played on and whatever. Baltimore or wherever it was are going to be there and they're going to do a ticket giveaway and you have to sign a thing to be given away and it was like but then there weren't very many people at the show so it like our, our song getting played on the radio was not working oh and that's it, interesting it was just like a weird mixed up time of like okay so like in our minds and listen we if someone had said hey you guys you know uh, guess what high five you're going to sell a million records it's not like we were against that but at the same time i think we sort of secretly knew like well the, we know like what we're trying to do is um is a very like tuneful take on a certain thing but it's still that certain thing mm-hmm. and so like i don't think um i don't think this is going to play out the way that the, those certain people thought it might you know and so there was a little bit of a flirtation of like oh it's like cellophane which you mentioned you know was on 12 commercial radio stations throughout the country and and the video got played it used to be on 120 minutes that if they play your video five weeks in a row um that means they're going to move it to the buzz bin which um you probably remember what that is. I don't know if everybody would. Yeah, no, but, but definitely it meant, explain it meant that. they were going to play you during the daytime yeah. instead of in the middle of the night, right? So 120 Minutes was like the alternative show that everybody stayed up to watch to see like weird things like, oh, weird, there's a whatever. There's, I didn't know there was a video to this song. Um, you know, it was the indie rock show on MTV back in the day from the, in the 80s and the 90s. And then so they had the, – the, the rule of thumb sort of was if they play you five weeks in a row – um, they're going to move it to the daytime, and you basically you're going to you're going to be put into regular rotation. And that had that was the path that many a big band had followed, right? Mm-hmm. And so we got played. It's like okay, we got played once, and then we got played the next week, and then we got played the next week, and we got played the week after that. And so we got played the four times, and we stayed up to see if we were going to get played the fifth time, which meant like okay, this is like a new world. You get to get played on MTV during the day. Like holy shit, that's crazy um and i was like no that's that's not gonna happen <laughs> and that sort of marked that was like the line in the sand of like okay what kind of band are you going to be like okay okay now it's official you are not going to be the daytime mtv band so you can sort of you can go back to regular programming back to this idea of like you know you're going to play all ages shows in basements and that's how most of touring is going to be you know Wow, so from that moment, I mean, did, did Alias really, that's it, I guess I never thought about that, I mean, it really was that gold rush, and being like, who's next, who's going to make it, and everyone just running as fast as they can to whatever they thought. Oh, totally, I mean, and listen, we weren't the weirdest band that, you know, people thought that about, I mean, they thought that about Tad, or they thought yep. that about... I mean, any number of like really weird bands. I mean, they thought that about the Butthole Surfers, right? I mean, yeah. they thought that about 
any number of like actually really weird bands where we were not, um, you know, you guys were a we rock were band. Not a weird band. We were just a rock band, but we weren't going to. It wasn't going to be that type of thing, probably. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't. But you know, it was like a, when is going back to it being like a very confusing time when like we grab like Silver Sweet Stakes was out or coming out. Blair and I graduated from Davis. We play. We opened for Pavement in Sacramento on the Crooked Rain tour. Which to us, I mean, that was like, that was a hometown show for them because they were from Stockton. That was 20 minutes from where we had graduated from college, you know, uh, three days before. And it was like, it was the biggest show we'd ever played. It was in a proper theater in Sacramento. And um, it was a big deal. And then we drove overnight and we played our first show in Boulder, which was with Chrissy Front Drive and at uh, Club 156, which was like the place back in the day. And so it was, I mean, that right there just tells you that it was like worlds colliding and things getting sorted out. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and as much as we, as much as we loved, like, you know, playing with pavement was insane and great and super fun, but it's like playing that show with Chrissy front drive. It's like, you know, the, 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 the kids that were there got it on a different level than the people that were just waiting to hear pavement play. And then that was when, did you feel, okay, this is, this is what this is. Here are our peers. These are, this is kind of what it's going to be. Cause again, from that point of, Hey, we've only got played four times. Now it's back to, you know, the playing these clubs and kind of doing it on yeah, the ground. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It felt more normal to just sort of go back to, the original plan anyway and we had met we played a show so christy front drive those guys um some of those guys were in a band called turnkey and um when knapsack just had like a demo tape um turnkey came out on a west coast tour and we ended up playing a show with them and so we had said oh we'd like to you know we'd like to go We'd, lo- we'd love to play in Denver or Boulder sometime. And we'll, you know, kind of was the classic thing where it's like you stay in touch. Either you, um, you know, you become pen pals or, uh, you know, you keep the phone number for when you're going to book the tour. Yep. And um, they made good on it. You know, it's like they were like, yeah, we remember you guys. We, we You know, we liked your band and um, come play. We, we'll do a show. We'll play with you guys. Uh, we play at this place, 156. That's all ages. It usually is like sold out. That the kids are like really into this stuff there, and it'll be great. And sure enough, it's like we drove and, and we met those guys. And then um, I remember meeting the mineral uh, guys. Uh, we we were set. We were catching. We were we did a tour, and then we had to like drive kind of a long ways to catch up with archers to start playing with archers. We played like five shows with them in the South and, um, we, they, there was a, they were playing in Austin and we said, Oh, well we're not on that show, but we'll just go watch it. Cause we really like them. And the mineral guys came over and they're like, Oh, we know who you guys are. You're in that band knapsack. And it was, again, it was like that. You had to find your people because, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't that common. So they like came to us and were like, "Oh, we're in this band Mineral. We live here in town, and we know who you guys are. We like your single or your record." Or I mean, and and then one by one, that just sort of happened. It happened with Christy Front Drive. It happened with Mineral. We did a tour with Boys Life, and we hadn't met them yet. But like the tour got set up because we were, you know, we were fans of each other's bands, and um, and and we got on famously with those guys, and 
you know, just like one by one, um, that sort of network came together. Yeah, it's just it's it's almost like this the storybook you you would think of how it how it would happen. You're meeting all the right people. Um, yeah, you know, but you didn't know. You didn't um, know. You knew, you knew that you liked their band a lot, and you knew that um, they were like the nicest people ever. I mean, come on, Chris from Mineral is like the nicest guy ever. Yes, and, and all those guys are nice. Um, I shouldn't single him out, although he is really fucking nice. Um, well, I was the last like time. Oh, oh sorry. I was going to say that when I was at um, South by Southwest, he called me this past year, just called me out of the blue and said, hey, I'm recording. Why don't you come over and hang out? You know? And then yeah. hung out, listened to him record a song. And he's, hey, you want to just come over and hang out tomorrow? I was like, yeah, sure. So we just listened to like his record and told me a bunch of stuff. And then it was just the most relaxed, chill, like, I don't know, like you're instantly like, you know, friends in there. I just think the in those times the good people pop out and are those connectors i think eric from christopher yeah. drive same thing a a, a a connector and just yeah. i like you i like you let's play together we have the same feeling and then i mean that's that community part that i think is so lost today it's through text i mean we haven't we've only emailed and you know talked but it's like it was that face to face connection the music came first and then you had this connection when you met yeah totally and and, i mean listen those tours weren't so glamorous that um it's like you needed the people to be nice and you needed the bands that you were going to see play every night to be great because those tours were a little rough and and it's not like um they were so glamorous that you could you could let people that weren't nice slide by because it was like we're all in this together and uh, there are going to be a couple nights on this tour that actually really suck. But it's like you knew the guy, you knew the people were nice, and you knew the you liked the bands. But there was no sense of like, oh, this is Chris from Mineral. He's going to be, you know, someone that people are like um, fawning over in fifteen years. There was no sense of that. It was like, oh, this guy actually was nice enough to walk over and say, I know your band. I bought your single, and I understand why you aren't just in like a grunge band or a ska band or any of the things that would make your life easier in 1994 you know can you talk about that because i think that was an interesting like 94 was definitely the i was in in high school at the time and you know it was so many different things converging and if it was if it was ska or was it you know grunge um i, I mean and then for you guys to not sound like that and then someone notice it it must have been such a weird thing because every inkling in your body must be like, all right, we're in a band. We're going to, we're, we're going to sound like this or. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you can't fake it, I guess is the thing. It's like, uh, you know, when it comes to being in a band or in sort of other, um, creative, uh, you know, output or extension of yourself it's like you can think on paper oh it would make my life easier to do this you know it's like but you can't yeah you can't fake it and you wouldn't be good at it anyway you know it's like i would be uh you know i just it's like you have to your heart has to be in it and again it goes back to the thing of like none of that stuff was so glamorous that you would do it because you thought it was the path toward um rock stardom or coolness or any of that like it wasn't um you know it wasn't cool it wasn't 
what was happening at the time. Yeah, no, definitely. It was it was definitely doing something, and but there was a community around it that was connecting, and you had like-minded, which I think was what, what made it great, um, is that it was kind of, it wasn't like you were going against what everything was. It was, this is what feels good, and this is what we want to do, um, and you guys were connecting those dots. Um, that's awesome. That's really cool. Those, I mean, those early tours and meeting all those people. And yeah, it's like everyone thinks, Oh God, must've been so great back then. Guess what? No one fucking showed up, you know, sometimes yeah, you I know, mean... <laughs> someone, dig, someone digs out a flyer and they, you know, post it on, uh, somewhere on the internet and you see people freaking out being like, Oh my God, I give my, you know, left arm to have been at that show and it's like you didn't want to be at that show i was at that show you didn't it wasn't you know it was like um it's not how you thought it's not how you think it probably was yeah yeah there was i mean the first times i was seeing jimmy world and promise ring it was at colleges or vfws and there was you know you could kind of you knew everybody in the room um, it wasn't like yeah. this tertiary uh, group of people that found out about it from the radio. <laughs> it was like... No, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, I think too the I mean quickly the or I mean two, two years later you guys had day three of my life, um, which Mark Trombino produced, and I mean that was just I was looking back at kind of the year. I mean he had done Boys Life, Jimmy. Uh, no knife, Boilermaker, and I think that same year he did Dude Ranch. Yeah, he did. Um, he did the Blink One Eighty Two record after us. I don't know if it was the same year, but I know that it was after us. Yeah, but it just that's. I mean, there was so much stuff you know happening at that moment. Was it the same? What expectations? I mean, obviously, yes, I understand you guys want to do successful, be the band. But what were kind of you guys thinking? Like, this is what we think is going to happen, or what was? What, what were your thoughts from that record? Here's what we were thinking. We were thinking that we didn't like the way our first record sounded. Mm-hmm. And um, now I sort of – it's like I couldn't listen to that record for a long time without just sort of cringing at certain things about the way that it sounded. And now I'm, I've, I'm over it and it just <laughs> reminds me of the time and it's, it sort of charms me in that way and distracts me from the, the other more technical thoughts. But we were thinking um, – that you know, I mean, I remember thinking, why does like the snare sound on the Boys Life record that they probably spent like a thousand dollars making sounds infinitely better than any snare that I've ever recorded? And like, why is this so hard? Like, why can't we? Like, who's the guy that will like get us and and we can say, you know, um, we can talk in that way that I was talking earlier? Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. Uh, I want the snare sound from, uh, you know, the first Fugazi record or whatever you might say to someone and just have them get it and be, and be like, well, you're not going to get that. But it, but I know what I like. I get the reference type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we want, um, you know, it's like seaweed used to have like the seaweed records sounded good and they had big guitars. And and so we're like, well, they just do that themselves. And like, why, why is this so hard for us to like figure out? Why don't we like the way our first record does? And so in searching for the guy that could sort of speak our language, it was like, well, this guy, um, he just so happens to be the drummer of Drive Like Jehu. And so like, that's, that's a pretty solid trump card when you're both talking about, I like, I guess threefold for me because he's a drummer. So it's like one, yeah, he, he, you're going to be able to like 
talk a common language with him because it's like you're not going to have to explain things when the guys in this band that you totally love. I mean, I listened to Drive Like Jehu this week. Um, <laughs> two, he has played on good, re- like good sounding records, and he's made good sounding records. So like, you don't you don't have to worry about that. And then like three, like Mark Trombino is. Um, you know, a hundred times better at playing the drums than I am. So like, like it was easy to say, like, this guy's got this, you know, like Mm -hmm. we can, we can sort of hand the reins over to this guy and he will lead us to, uh, the, down the path of records that sound good, uh, which we didn't think our first record did. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's and, awesome. and he didn't disappoint. I mean, the the first thing he had us do, he's like, well, we're not just going to step into the studio. We're going to do like a week of pre-production. And you guys are going to come down here and like we're going to like sort of sort out these songs together, which – and you know, and we would go into situations like that. We were a bit of a ramshackle bunch, and he didn't know us. He didn't know that about us yet, but he found it out quickly. And it was like – it was a little bit like school's in, like – like you guys get, I'll push record when I think you're ready for me to push record, and that time isn't right now. Clearly, you wow. know. And so, and he would, he would. I mean, he. But again, nicest guy ever. He's he's the sweetest guy ever. But he was like, I'm not gonna let you. I'm not gonna do that to you. Like that when you guys think you're playing to get. Like you, you guys think you're playing the same thing during that part but you're not playing the same thing. And he was, you know, and he was right. So we would break it down and we'd be like, okay, what do you, what do you think we're doing right here? And then, you know, it's like, oh, we weren't on the same page. Thanks for that. Like, let's fix it. And then like, okay, once we, you know, and it's like, okay, one song done on to the next. And he could just sit there and be a producer, you know, and be like a guy who's like, I want, I, you know, I want you guys to be ready to, make a, a solid record. That's awesome. What were some of the standouts from that record that you dig? Um, the, you know, I uh, decorate the spines a good time. And I, the thing I remember um, is in the middle part, it ended up getting mixed fairly low, but there's like some, um, there's like some guitar shrill chaos that happens sort of like in the, like the breakdown part where it's just mm-hmm. me playing drums, blare singing. And I think everything else is just like feedback. And, um, I was like, I was like, what do you, th-? I was like, I totally dig that. Like I dig like the, um, like the dissonance, uh, that's happening in that part right there. I'm like, Hey Mark, what do you think of it? And he's like, I think you're ruining a perfectly good pop song. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it was like, the, it was, and it's like, wait, the guy from drive like Jay, who is like telling us like, don't fuck with your pop song. Um, but uh, too, I'm glad we I'm glad we kept it and you know I I, I like that part but I just remember like it was like the ultimate vote of non confidence like and you were so stoked yeah, to ask him and then bad like, idea no. yeah bad idea buddy <laughs> yeah totally totally uh, that's awesome um, anything from those you know what what tours were happening in in '97 um, that were is there whether were they the same bands or the same era was it was it starting to change? Did you start to see the um, the audience change? Or I mean, that was I mean for '97 for me, I was doing a radio show at the time as well in college, and the band like I could just feel the records coming in. If it was Crank sending them one day, or if it was um, a label from the East Coast, and what were some stuff from that time frame? Yeah, I mean, I think I I definitely think that was both. I think the record we made was um 
a uh you know i think the first it was like the first record was us figuring out how to make a record the second record was like statement of purpose and mm-hmm. and i think like i don't know if we meant to do that but it's like we pared down to a three piece we did it with mark and when in doubt those songs are like a little simpler like we were very into like uh you know, we just sort of pared it down, and it, and it that was in my mind that was sort of our statement of purpose record, and I think that coincided with things like you said, where it started to be like this is a thing. There's a there's a thing going on. There are bands that sound like this, and they're on these couple labels, and they tour together, and they play these types of venues, and it sort of started. It was happening. You yeah. know, it was like still wasn't the coolest thing. It still wasn't like. um but 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 even but like it had started to even take over college radio, which was a which was a new thing. I mean, I think that was sort of the that was like the five year era where those bands like started to do really well in college radio. And I think the tour that we did, the tour that I remember from that record was it was Jimmy World Since Field and us together um, for most of the country, and. Um, you know, it was kind of like a piecemeal tour where each band did a little, like each band could sort of like cover off on a region of the country. It's like since Field was, um, you know, was a pretty big band and like, uh, you know, sort of like the the hard the northeast hardcore region. They, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they had that sort of like Revelation cachet, and then Jimmy World sort of, you know, did well like. Midwest, you know, places closer to their home. And um, so that was, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a perfect tour. It wasn't, um, you know, it was by no means like a um, crazy uh, successful tour, but it was three bands that liked each other. It was three bands that got along well. And, and um, uh, you know, it, it, that was the tour we did behind that record, I think. And probably some others that um, I'm forgetting and, who knows what else? I think that the friends that make fun of you for remembering stuff, you're great. You're remembering a lot more than like <laughs> but you some... don't know. But you don't know that half the shit could be like completely out of order. <laughs> or like that's not that, that tour. That's not the right tour for that record. <laughs> well, it's, it's like you're throwing moment. out yours, and I'm just trusting you. If, it's like if you say that Day Three of Mighty Life came out in '97, I'm I, 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 probably right. <laughs> Decorate spine for her And we're not who we might prefer Motives move so self-shed Settled around me A black head and empty hole Fast and unfriendly Sure. So I have a um, I have a website called Swimmingly um, that's about it's about the intersection of uh, independent music and food culture. So I, I, I'm all, I'm all over that. I love your site. Oh, cool! That's Thank awesome. You so much. I've yeah, been, I've been doing it uh, for a little over a year now, and I'm I curated the um, the food at this music festival that's happening this weekend up in Sonoma that I'm super excited about. Well, then wait. Hold on a second. Did I bug you? I might have followed you on Swimmingly and not even known that you were in Knapsack. 
because you had done I forget the interview you might I don't remember uh, oh, I'm trying to remember which one tipped me off to it but it was super cool and I love the aesthetic of it and everything and then for oh thank you um, and then so again that was really awesome um, you were doing like I just love the vibe of it um, oh I, that's I, exciting thank you yeah. so much I don't know if you remember some narrative it's, it's that was hitting me up super fun for me yeah, there, I was actually I was looking at a AP from '97, and I had saved it somehow um, because Helmet was on the cover, and I was a big Helmet fan at that time. I, I they were like to me such a great band, and it wasn't it was metal, but it wasn't. And there was an ad for the record in there um, for Day Three of My New Life, and I just was kind of like, wow, this is kind of this is what you had to do. You had to put it in the uh, the AP. It was you know radio was still king. Um, you know, there wasn't, you know, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Vine, Makeout Club, any of those, LiveJournal. None, <laughs> none of that. None of that stuff. I mean, Nap- Knapsack never had a uh, an official website or anything like that. That's what I love to hear. Look at that. We're talking about bands that didn't even have websites. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Podcasts were only a twinkle in our eyes. <laughs> Nerding out. Uh, I was too. I think with '98 conversations ending right now, that was soon after. Um, was it? Am I getting the dates wrong? Of course, I'm, maybe I'm asking the wrong person. Um, yeah. But it was it was definitely soon after. Did you guys have a ton of songs that you were just ready to put out? No, we, we never had a ton of songs. In fact, um, I think there are ten songs on each record because contractually, um, I think our contract said. Uh, a full-length record is no less than ten songs and no less than forty minutes. Oh, that's so that hilarious. song. That song, cellophane. Um, it, it, it's it's funny. I I don't listen to. Uh, I don't know what any of the knapsack lyrics mean. I didn't write any of them, and I am not someone to listen who listens to other people's lyrics. I'm usually listening to either like the song as a whole or or drums or whatever. But forty more than I could take today. Uh, I'm pretty sure refers to this idea of we had to figure out how to make a 40 minute long record and, and probably had about 22 minutes of material at the time. (laughs) So there is no bonus tracks lying around. (laughs) No, I mean, I, uh, the, the studio that we recorded, um, uh, silver sweepstakes in, and then we also did, one or two like compilation or like like we I think we did the crank song the the don't forget to breathe song there and maybe um, dropkick from the stuntman seven inch I think the, I think that's what we did there so I just got a bit that that label or that uh, studio closed and John who's a super nice guy the guy who owns it um, sent me he called me up or uh, whatever the 2013 version of that is. Uh, sent me some sort of message and said, hey, I've got a box of knapsack tape, like analog tape here. Uh, where can I send it? And so I just got, I, I don't think there's anything interesting on that, but I'll, I'll find a way to figure it out here one of these days. Nice. I like this. I think you should. <laughs> but but uh, we were not a prolific band. And so Odds are that if if something is on there, it's because it belongs there. And yeah, if if there was something usable, we were happy to to 
add it to the list and have that be one one less uh, song we had to sort out. Um, I think that some of the record, um, some of the songs from that last record definitely spoke to a lot of people. And um, skip the details, Catherine the Great, Balancing Act. Um, what were any of those favorites for you, or just? I think that for me that sounded the, like I love the sound of that record. Um, we play. Um, Actually, this past weekend, or past week, we had Catherine the Great requested, and people like usually request stuff from that record. It sounds fucking great loud, and that's what I love about some of these, you know, era records that you can play them super loud, and they started to sound better. Uh, what was some of the things from that recording that stuck out? We, you know, we didn't we didn't track that with Mark. He mixed it, but we didn't we tracked it with Alex Newport, mm-hmm. who. Oh, um, oh fuck yeah, Alex. He Newport. did. Yeah, he did the early at the drive-in stuff, and um, and he was in Fudge Tunnel, we, and we did it in San Francisco, and yeah, and he was in the band Fudge Tunnel. He's a, he's a nice guy, um, and uh, you know he and Mark have um a very different. We didn't know who was going to mix it, and we thought maybe even Alex might mix it. And I don't remember how it all came to be, but it was to hand. It's on paper, it's a weird record that the way that the tracks sounded when they were handed to Mark were like, um, it's like the way those guys record things is pretty, um, disparate. And so like for Mark to get like a snare drum, that's like pretty, like that's tuned pretty low, like versus tight, you know? Mm -hmm. And like to have to figure out what to do with that, like, it didn't make sense on paper and it could have been a really bad idea, but I like the way that that, I like the way that that record sounds and I like the songs. And, um, I mean, I, I think, like I said earlier, like the, the first record is us just trying to figure out how to be a band, make a record, whatever else. Second record is sort of like statement of purpose, like pare down and just sort of like get the simple things right. And then the third record, this conversation was us like, um, like, okay, I think we can stretch out a little bit. Like, Sergi had joined the band and he's a good guitar player and we were, you know, it's like, it sounds silly, but like, okay, computer had come out and there was just like something in the air that was like a little bit more of like, it's, you know, like it was a time to kind of like stretch out a little bit. People were, people were putting like analog synths on records that where they wouldn't normally belong and and sort of like loopy stuff and and um you know i we had fun with some of that there's the weird like alex loop my um the thing at the end of um one of the songs that's like uh like a drum loopy thing Mm -hmm. or maybe might be construed as a drum solo is be is like him him like just trying to get like mic sounds early on in the recording and him just like saying hey go play drums for 20 minutes while i like get this like try to get like levels and stuff and then he took that and then like did that crazy mashup at the end so it's like that's like it's like strewn it's like strewn together and it's not like one thing that i played together it's like you know it's like 18 different parts like patched together and that was just sort of like the vibe of that of that which was like stretch out a little bit oh that's awesome and of course that time too was that was 98 was pretty nuts um touring wise was there it was it um was it the same was it different were your things starting to change did you see people you know was it seeing other bands succeed or getting to certain points and it just that time felt especially in the scene it just seemed like 
people were starting to get picked off or they were they were breaking up. Yeah, I mean, I I think there was a lot more. Um, it felt more like an end than a beginning to me. Looking back at that time, I mean, um, music was in a a pretty sad place at that time. It's like any sort of like post Nirvana coolness had quickly or had over the years sort of turned to Creed, which turned to like Limp Biscuit. And then the boy band thing was big at the time, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so, like, music was in a pretty sorry state of affairs in terms of, like, the mainstream. And um, it, if Jimmy World had, like, wasn't dropped that year, it's like they were, I mean, that was sort of like the era when they got dropped. It pretty much, the bands that we played with most often had broken up and we were kind of, figuring out how it was all going to if there was going to be like a next step or if we were going to call it a day and and um i don't think we had said so the tour we did behind that was um was with at the drive-in and i don't think going into that tour we had said this is the last tour but um i had a job where i had to do that tour as like my two weeks of paid time off, which mm-hmm. and that was the first that was the first time that had happened. I didn't have a job before that, but I I had a job. I'd moved to San Francisco, and I and it costs a lot more to live here than where I had, was living before, and so I took a job. And so any sort of knapsack tour had to be like two weeks paid time off. And so because of that, we had to do it differently, and we had to like say like okay, well we can only. So what we ended up doing was. I had seen at the drive-in and they were bananas and um but I had only seen them because our booking agent said we wanted to do a tour where we said we need to go we need to like borrow the backline from we need to play on another band's instruments and we need to fly to where they are and like do we could do the west coast no problem but we need to fly to where they are and do like Chicago east exactly. with them and playing their instruments and so our booking agent who um, became at the drive-ins manager through all like the crazy huge stuff um, said, go see this band at the drive-in. They'd probably, they like you guys. They'd, they'd probably let you play their instruments. They like your records. And so I went and saw at the drive-in in San Francisco in front of like 20 people. And I don't know if you saw them like back I early did. on, but like that, I mean, you know, they would take 20 people and just like, blow their doors off and and i mean they were any you could put them in front of anyone but it didn't matter how how few people were there um they were going to do what they were going to do and it was going to be bonkers yeah so I, actually, I was like oh sorry i was oh, gonna go say ahead. no it was the tour that i saw was jimmy Eat world um at the drive-in and lazy cane um okay and they there's a friend found a video online from that show someone shot a vhs tape of them playing fahrenheit and it's when i explain to people sort of that time frame and them i play them that video because it's yeah. insane <laughs> oh yeah i mean they were you know it's like you saw them for two minutes and you're like well i don't know if this is going to be mainstream huge or what kind of huge but like this is special and yeah. this is different and this is um this just feels like raw energy in a really cool way Yeah. 
was that the at the drive-in the last tour and then you guys broke up what was the did it kind of linger and then it was you guys broke up in 2000 or happened to be the 15th anniversary of like that last proper tour so we got home and um i got a dubity music and that was like well this is like a real job and it's what i wanted you know it was it was like a marketing job and it was like what i wanted to do as a career or what I wanted to do next and what I've ended up doing. And um, so that kind of made things more complicated because it's like, well, I can't, it's like, I can't do a bunch of things. Certainly. I mean, and I think maybe that's, I, I was wrong to assume like I couldn't do several things at once, but I just felt like it owed, um, I owed it my full attention and I wanted to start a family and I wanted to maybe figure out a way to buy a house. And, I, you know, it's like it was just that time. It was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do next as a band. And um, but I know that I'm I, I want to take this job seriously and I want to sort of shore things up financially for myself and figure out what I'm going to do next. So we got home from that tour and I took that job. And then there was this weird thing that happened where um, – so we were out of – so three records for Alias was what we owed them unless like they – unless like a major label came along and um, – unless they did like a partnership with a major label. And so we were out of our – we were out of our Alias. Um, to make new to make new records, and so we didn't know what we were going to do next. And um, Interscope, of all people, uh, started sniffing around. And um, I think at the time, I think there was like a there was like one guy at Epitaph that got us and pretty much said they'd sign us. But Epitaph was a pretty tough guy back then. Like it was before um, anti. Uh, yeah, and and some other things that they've done, and um, so you know, to me, uh, Epitaph was like Pennywise, and um, that was never my thing. So that felt like it was going to be weird, and it also didn't feel like it was going to be like all that different. Like you know, it's like you know, what would it, what would a fourth record be like? And uh, you know, and so Interscope started sniffing around, and we actually went down and we played this show um, in front of Jimmy Iovine. Yeah, like a private show in front of Jimmy Iovine and this guy Tom Wally, who was. Um, I've interviewed I, with Tom Wally. Oh yeah, <laughs> okay. so you know who that is. Yes, record industry hotshot. Um, and we played like a private show at the. Uh, um, at where did uh, Rivers Phoenix die? What's that place called? Uh, Cheese, cheesy L.A. Roxy. No. Um, the Viper Room. Viper Room. So we play like a private show at the Viper Room for Tom Wally and Jimmy Iovine. And um, it went – we played old songs and new songs. And afterward, we sat down and we had a drink with Jimmy Iovine. And he's like, I think we're going to sell a lot of records together. And we're like, this is bizarre. Okay, this is <laughs> so weird. But you know, it was sort of like a time where it was like, well, if we're going to continue to do this, we should like do this in a different way. And – all sorts of weird shit's happening, and so like, I don't know. Maybe we should go be on Interscope. I, you know, 
there's we were you know i mean we were certainly open to the idea yeah and so it went from like um i think we're going to sell a lot of records together and they said like in these situations like i mean like these guys will just get up and leave in the middle of your first song if if they're like not into it or whatever and so we're like oh god that would suck so they stay through the whole thing he says i think we're going to sell a lot of records together and then it was like and then nothing like and then they don't return your calls oh that's classic that's classic yeah (laughs) and you know we were sort of like well that's fine and that probably would have been weird anyway and um so we said, well, we need to do like – I don't know if we had done – I don't know how much we had done on the West Coast after that record had come out. So we felt like we needed to do like a little something on the West Coast even if it was going to be the last thing we did. So we set up some shows for I want to say January of 99 um, and it was San Francisco, Orange County, LA. And then Blair and I had a conversation um, where I said, you know, I think um, – I think – I think I'm ready to to not do this anymore. And, um, you know, it, we've been friends for so long. And it's just, I think, you know, it, I don't think he wanted to be done doing music, obviously. He continued to be doing music. But I think he knew me well enough to know, like, I know what you want to go do. I know you want to go start a family. And I know you want to, like, start a career. And I know, you know, like, I kind of always – you know, knew that this point would come maybe or something. Anyway, you know, it's like we're buddies. We've known each other forever. And so, you know, it was not, um, it was not, it was a hard conversation to have, but it wasn't like, you know, but we, it was just, okay, that's the plan where that's what we'll do. And we'll, we'll play these last three shows. And there wasn't a, there wasn't like a way to like make a grandiose, yeah. You know, it's like there wasn't a place online to say like, hey, these are our last shows. Some people knew, some people didn't. We knew in advance, but it, like there was no way just to have it be like, you know, it it was not the last waltz. It was uh, it was just like, we'll just go play these shows and, it, and it's sort of like in a somewhat workmanlike fashion. And um, San Francisco was amazing and 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 that was a great night. And then we went down and we played and that show was with um, – Sinsfield and I don't know who else with the San Francisco show. The the last show was Sinsfield and then um and then we played the chain reaction in Orange County somewhere, maybe Anaheim. Not sure. And um that was without the drive in. And then we played the Troubadour in, in LA. And that was without the drive in as well. And in fact, um there's a there's a video out there, uh I know the guy who has it. I won't name his name, although it may have to come to that <laughs> for us to, to, to get it out of his paws. But there's a video of that. I have a cassette tape of the the audio from that from that last night. But there's also a video um, from it. And um, Omar from At the Driving comes out and plays tambourine or shakers on Decorate the Spine, and um, it was a pretty pretty special night and a, a pretty great way for us to to go out. How are we gonna get this video? Let's. We need to. Uh, we need to time this. <laughs> I will. Up. I will. Um, I'll upgrade my threats and see if that helps at all. Is it on VHS? Or is it on another format? Oh, you know it. 
I have I I convert VHS tapes. Um, I've done a bunch of I did some mineral stuff. I've done a bunch of things, so um, I can help. <laughs> okay, we'll keep that in mind. Nice. Um, so it brings us to what everyone's kind of been excited about, and I think um, excited to hear about the reunion and you know the site that you guys had set up and to see the stuff being posted and people writing things and getting really excited. Um, you know, it's, it's great to see, um, what sparked this. And, you know, I know that it was the 15th anniversary of the last tour, but kind of were there early conversations or was it like, Hey, let's try this. And I'd love to kind of hear how it came about. Yeah. The the 15th anniversary thing is a total retrofit. It's certainly not, it has never even been a conversation that we had of, um, I think it was me that just sort of figured that out. But, um, you know, I always – Blair and I had kept we, – we keep in touch. We see each other. You know, we grew up the same place. We see each other over the holidays, usually when we're home for um, for Christmas or whatever. And then I'll always go out and see the Jealous Sound. I love – I think those records are amazing and, um, like, just really, like, accomplished and smart and savvy and, and great. And um, I'll always go out and – hang with Blair when they come through town and all those guys are nice, Bob and everybody else. And, um, we would talk, so we would talk about, you know, I'm, I'm like the, the band archivist. And so I've got like a bunch of old photos and set lists and flyers and a bunch of stuff. And we had just sort of said like, well, it would be fun if we could get those records reissued or if we could do like, at least get them back out on vinyl and do like some cool packaging around it with like all the old stuff I have. And, um, the gel sound manager, Tom, who was in Sunday's best and was in a band called skip loader that we played with like way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, he started sort of working on that and he's a go getter and was trying to make that happen. And I, it doesn't look like it's going to, um, but that, that sort of forced us to kind of, have knapsack conversations, which is not something that we had done in a really long time. I mean, I, I would go out and I'd see Blair, I'd be hanging out with Blair and he'd say, Oh, so-and-so said a really nice thing about this kid came up and said a really nice thing about knapsack or told this really interesting, like charming story about knapsack or so-and-so showed me like, I think one time he said, you know, this crazy, like somebody has a knapsack tattoo or something like that. And it was like, there was definitely like a conversation of like it's weird that this thing won't die because like we weren't a big band when this was happening and you know you would just think that this would go away a little more than it has and it's just kind of curious like oh this keeps like it's this thing is kind of not going away and so maybe we should put those records out and then and then Tom the Jealous Sound manager was like well would you would you guys play shows if the records came back out? And Blair and I had always just said, cause I mean, we, we treat that stuff with kid gloves just because like, you know, we're always like, our friendship is more important than any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, you know, it's like, I don't want to go down any path that puts that into, into any sort of risk, you know? So it's like, it's easier to just have the first instinct be no, um, than it is to like, you know, we just want to be so careful about that. And so, you know, it was kind of like, well, I'd do it. And Blair's like, well, I'd do it. And, um, you know, Sergi had always sort of said, like, I'm up for whatever. And But we had said we were going to do it around the reissuing of the records. And, again, I don't think that's going to happen. And then the fest, the festival in Florida called The Fest came through with, like, um, 
I think they had heard that these conversations were maybe happening a little bit, that it wasn't out of the question. And so they threw out an offer. And that was the first time where we had to like, instead of just continue saying maybe to each other, like we owed someone an answer, like we owed someone an answer, a yes or no, like, all right, you guys can play the show or not. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like I threw out like a formal offer. Like you can say no, of course, but like you can't just that, you know, it can't be like, oh, we'll pick up this conversation next time Blair comes through San Francisco. Like, this is not going to wait for that. And that's kind of how that conversation had gone. It had been like a multi, you know, it had been kind of over time that we had warmed up to the idea a little bit. You know, what's interesting is I had emailed Blair when I just, I heard things in the nerdery that I, my circles that I roll in, and I emailed him, hey, what's going on? And he, all he wrote back was, what rumors? <laughs> yeah. So was there denial, denial until uh, until the announcement, or was it you might have been still going back and forth? Uh, I don't know when when was this. I can look at the Gmail. I mean, it was definitely it was definitely before anything was announced, but not that far off. Oh yeah, no, it was probably just denial. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I, yeah, I got a couple. <laughs> I, you know, I I, re, I returned a couple of emails that were like, "Oh, that sounds really interesting. What what did you hear and, and who from? You know, just because." <laughs> You know, if it's like if you're trying to keep the cat in the bag, you're trying to keep the cat in the bag. What's the point of like, you know, it's the internet after all. It's not like, um, it's not like the shit doesn't spread like wildfire. We're all we're all pretty excited about it, and and you know, I mean, we're just uh, it's all about having fun. It's all all about hanging out again staying super positive and just uh, having a you know crazy appreciation for the idea that we can actually do this because yeah, honestly 15 years ago if you would have said people are going to give half a shit in 2013 I would have thought you were crazy Thanks again for listening to the Watch Up Email podcast. Uh, I'm going to keep going as long as I can, as long as my um, hours in the day stay. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Watch Up Emo or Zuckerberg's site, facebook.com slash Watch Up Emo. And if you're ever in New York City, come hang with us every first Thursday at Idle Hands Bar for Emo Night. So until next time, thanks. Yeah.